There are two things I wanted to share with you this morning. The first being that my parents said things, they said terrible things to me as a child. Things that parents seldom say these days. Things like, Aaron, please go outside and play. Now, my parents also did terrible, irresponsible things to me, like letting me go leave the house without a cell phone. Now, admittedly, back then, they didn't have cell phones, but they did have very long phone cords. And they could have said to me, you can't go any further than the length of this phone cord. But in fact, they would let me go out of the house to play with only one instruction. Be home before it gets dark. And if you broke that one rule, you had better have either a very good excuse or a good lawyer, and probably both. The thing is, these weren't just rules given to me. It was given to everyone. All of our parents yelled at us to go outside and play, and we were all told to be home either before dinner or dark. And today, well, I don't have to tell you. It doesn't happen. I drive through my neighborhood, and I seldom see children playing outside. Sure, there are always a few mothers with small children outside, but no one over the age of six or seven. And never teenagers. There are, of course, reasons why most of them really bad ones, like the lurking fear and suspicion that there's a predator lurking around a corner beyond our eyesight and that it's dangerous for children to play outside. What all this actually means is that we are seeing before our eyes the very first generation of indoor human beings, the first generation of humans to live the majority of their lives inside man-made spaces. When I look at my children and their friends, that even when they go to meet each other and socialize, they either go to the mall or to another person's house. And the technology of our lives, our TVs and our computers and our electronic games, keep us inside of our homes and not outside. Now, to have gotten where we are has taken a lot of time and the collision of both ability and science because the entire march of human life has been the progression of humans moving from the outside into the inside. You see, at first humans were always outdoors, but because we're not capable of living unprotected, we needed first clothing and we needed shelter, because these were the things that protected us from burning our skin in the sun and from cracking it in the freezing cold. Our shelter protect us from the rain and the wind, from bugs, disease, and predators. And at each step of civilization, we increased our steps from the outdoors to the indoors, from crude fat hutch that gave way to move living in caves where fire could be safely used, and then caves gave way to brick and stone shelters where fireplaces and ovens could be built, and our ability to build better structures grew so much that we spend more time inside of them. And let's be honest, most of the time, it's just playing better at places inside than outside. But like many things in human life, each of our steps forward involves something that social scientists like calling a progress trap. Now, a progress trap is something when it seems like we're actually making an improvement 
but then there's some unintended consequence that comes along because of it. The car makes it easier for people to get around and to cross large distances, but it pollutes our environment and it clogs our roadways. Electricity enables people to far extend their day to socialize and do all kinds of recreation and work, but it ends up destroying our sleep patterns. And I could go on and on, but you get the idea of what a progress trap is. But in our case, the more time you spend indoors means the more time you spend in man-made beauty. We become fixated with the things that we make, the millwork of a good carpenter, the painted images that humans make, the finery of good carpet weavers, and we spend less time admiring the beauty of things that God makes. And the beauty that God makes is incomparable, immeasurable, than the things that we make. Nothing can compare to the heights of a mountain or the depths of the ocean, to the vastness of space and the enormity of things beyond our gravity. The writer E.B. White, he used to write for the New Yorker decades ago. He wrote that when Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, the truly remarkable thing wasn't that we put a man on the moon. By the way, this past July was the 50th anniversary of it. White said that the revolutionary thing about the moon landing was that it was the first time in human history that people went inside their homes to actually look at the moon. And he was right. And we haven't been the same since. So let's talk about the sukkah. The sukkah is a simple structure. Jewish law says that its walls can be made of anything provided that it is not so flimsy or so weak that it can stand up to a decent gust of wind. So it's a reasonable structure to have shelter from. But it also instructs us that the roof of the sukkah must be made of more organic material and that it cannot be secured or lashed to it and that it must be thick enough to provide shade, and it's Jew Jewish law here, but not so thick that it obscures the stars. Which is actually to say that the sukkah is an inside outside structure. It's the in-between, the bridging of our closeness of our homes and the open, wide expanse of the outdoors. The sukkah brings us outside of our home, but it does so without making us contestants or naked and afraid. What the sukkah does so wonderfully is it helps us appreciate not the beauty that is made, but the beauty that is given. Not a world of construction, but a world of creation. And those are two very different things. To this day, the most indelible memory I have is being by the Dead Sea at night. Now the Dead Sea, as you know, is the lowest point on the earth. And how I looked up at the star canopy and it looked like the inside of a bowl, rounded and concaved in a way that I've never seen anywhere in my life. The sukkah opens the door to us being back in touch with God's world. Now the other, the second thing I want to say to you is, is the very opposite of how we're being taught in the world. Experts and gurus are all about teaching people to reach for peak moments, to capture the adrenaline of the world that we live in. So people climb Mount Everest, Mount Kilimanjaro. They do Ironman competitions in the Arctic Circle. They run to the most far-flung corners of the world to see the unusual and the exceptional, which is all good and fair. I mean, see the world. Maybe don't climb Mount Everest. 
but see the world. But just, but just like the warning about progress traps, there is also a warning about peak moment traps, which by ever pushing the envelope of what counts as worthy of being seen, we stand to lose something else. And Alain de, in, in, in Alain de Baton's book, he writes that the writer, Marcel Proust, wrote an essay about an unhappy and unsatisfied person. Proust imagined them sitting in their modest home, looking at the row table, at a threadbare carpet, second-hand chairs. And it's all far from the beautiful things that he wants for himself, the things that the rich and famous people all seem to have. He imagined that those people all have these perfect, beautiful, well-staged homes and well-staged lives, that everything, even down to their kitchen tongs and their door handles, must all be just perfect. Proust goes on to write that in his inclination, that it might be to bring this man to the Louvre to see paintings by Michelangelo or Claude or Van Dyck. Go see more exceptional beauty. That'll make you feel better. But he said that he would take this person to go see the paintings of Jean Chardin. It was Chardin who didn't paint the exquisite landscapes or beautiful people. Chardin painted the ordinary. Canvases of apple and bowls of fruit. Kitchen tables with worn tablecloths and glasses of plain wine. Not royalty, but people playing cards, reading a book, people baking bread or making dinner. Chardin's talent lied in his skill with brush and paint of his eye to capture and then transmit the right angle and the best shading of things that he is putting brush to canvas with. But there's a difference between talent and genius. His talent was painting. But his genius was in what he chose to paint. By choosing the ordinary and selecting the average to paint, what Chardin's genius is telling us is that life's beauty is everywhere. You don't have to hang off of a cliff or summit a mountain or run to the end of the world. Beauty is about attitude and not reality. Chardin reminds us that to make more of our attitude in order to make more of our reality. The truth can be said of faith. For thousands of years, Judaism has been teaching this, that the miracles of life are the usual common things that we forget to pay attention to. The water in a glass, the food that you are about to eat, the cycle of the moon that rewinds every month, and the rising and setting of the sun, and each of these and so much more. Judaism has created a ritual to have us stop and look and appreciate the beauty that is outside our doors and all around and inside of ourselves. Because Judaism is a strategy to see miracles where you have stopped seeing them. Not because there are no miracles, but because we get used to seeing them. Shabbat Shalom.